the book of Genesis, if you'd like to turn there with me. Genesis chapter 8. Starting in verse 1, the word of God says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed, and the rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And the seventh month, on the 17th day of the month, of, on the 17th day of the month, the ark came to a rest on the mountain of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the 10th month. In the 10th month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you once again for the Lord's Day on which we can gather to hear from your word. We ask that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word this morning, and we ask that by your spirit you would convict us, guide us, and make us a thankful people. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So where we left off um, last week in our attempt... Uh, to roughly date the biblical historical context of God's call to Abraham. Uh, again, and again, I, I say, uh, as we followed along last week, and then I encourage you, again, we'll look at chronology this morning, and then we're going to move a little bit from the chronology into the theology of what we are to learn in this movement of history. But again, where we left off to say roughly date, because we're assuming a few things about the genealogical records we're given uh, in the biblical text. So again, I might offer a particular year, um, but it's somewhat roughly sketched. But what we're attempting to do is roughly date the biblical historical context of God's call upon Abraham. And where we've left off with, was with Noah and his family approaching the global flood event, and then we call it in the year of the world which is to date the text from Genesis 1 to say, in the beginning, God created. And then you begin to date the text as it moves forward. So the title for that type of dating is to say, the year of the world, 1656. Is when Noah and his family are approaching a global flood event. Again, we arrive at such a date from dating within the biblical text. There are other methods, there are other ways that we could consider the dating, and there's other ways to look at the Hebrew narrative story, or, uh, the rough sketch of the creation days. But again, if we look within the biblical text and we take it as it is written, and then we assume a couple of things about that reading. Which is, number one, I mentioned to you last week, assuming the creation days are 24-hour periods. Like, the day that you experience today is the day in that text. Uh, again, uh, we could discuss this at another time and say, well, what are the other approaches? And, and that would be fine. Again, I, I don't think we need to uh, divide over such readings. I, I don't think we need to draw the sword, so to speak, over such readings. Uh, I have, uh, uh, again... Uh, 
dear brothers within my presbytery who, who uh, you know, don't read it that way. And, and it's warm, it's collegial, it's brotherly, and, and so on and so forth with you and myself. I'm just simply saying the approach that I am taking is that I am dating the events leading up to Abraham from within the biblical text. Therefore, I'm assuming that the creation days are 24-hour periods and further that there are no major gaps in the genealogical records that we are given. So that by the time you get to uh, chapter 5 and so forth, and you're moving from Genesis 1 and you're coming up to Abraham where we find him in Ur, that is we find him in Babylon in chapter 11, uh, as you move from all those dates, where I'm suggesting to you we're not missing decades, we're not missing centuries, and we're not missing millennia in the genealogical records. So then that makes a, 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 a basic approach to dating the entire thing possible. Um, again, uh, that's at least how I'm presenting it to you as we lead to what is the world like when God bursts upon the scene and takes one man among his brothers who then becomes today for us our father in the faith. What is the earth like when God intercedes? So if I'm dating the scenery leading up to Noah and his family about to endure the flood event, I wish to impress upon you that if it's 1656, consider that this would mean that human civilization, science, engineering, Mathematics, innovation has been building and developing by the time of Noah and his family for at least 1,500 years. By the time Noah undertakes his deforesting project, stripping the bark of the trees and building and attempting with his son to build an ark. Just to put that into uh, kind of our, our time span here, consider with me that this same amount of time spans from the 4th century to today. And just think of the innovation that we have had as a human civilization from the 4th century to today. So... Again, my point a little bit is to suggest that, yes, indeed, the ark is a massive project. A massive project. Especially when you consider it's Noah and his sons who are going about all of the work uh, to build the ark. But I, but I hasten to encourage you, um, when you really meditate upon it, and you think the same amount of time from the 4th century to today, it really is not altogether fantastical or otherworldly. Or we finally move to say it's mythology. No, brothers, sisters, it is not. It is not. Surely if we receive the biblical record and consider the span of time and God's providence through science, engineering, and innovation, it is indeed a massive work. But it is not myth. And it need not be in order for us to be considered sophisticated. 
Now, we need to begin to move, as I said to you a few moments ago, we need to move from the chronology of the events of the flood event as we're approaching the flood event, as we look to the earth, when it is uh, the time for Abraham to be called. We're moving now from chronology to the theology that we are taught in and through the event. Did the event exist? Yes, it did. That is my argument 110%. Yes, it absolutely did. Then in the event, what are we taught in the record of the event? What are we given by Moses in and through the event? What is the theology that's communicated to us that, again, prepares us for what? The call of Abraham. Well, when we consider the flood event and we read the accounts, and we'll just brush through it this morning just for a few moments, but as we consider the event and we consider what are we being taught in the event, we learn that God is a God of covenants. This is critical. This is critical for your understanding of how do I describe the God who is? How do I describe the God who am I in relationship with through faith that rests upon Christ? Well, the God of creation chooses at this moment with Noah and his family to without a doubt reveal himself as a God who operates through covenant. If we were to say, what does this mean, essentially, that we find God interacting with Noah here? Well, God uses covenants as his way of relating to humanity. Well, we say, well, what is a covenant? So God, God is a covenant God. Okay, he reveals himself to, to Noah and his family, indeed, as a God of covenant. Well, what does that mean for Noah? What does that mean for Abraham? What does that mean for me? It means God reveals himself to mankind in binding relationships. And this is a theme, beloved. This is a theme. What we see right here in the revelation of God to Noah and his family, this is a theme that runs throughout the entire age and continues all until Christ indeed returns. It is reflected in every era of biblical history. Your God is a covenant God. To say that this is a theme that we are awakened to explicitly, again, we could go to the garden, but we don't have time, which indeed, again, isn't entirely the point to spend the time in the garden. So if we move to Noah and his family, just for, for our purposes of what we're trying to achieve to eventually land at Abraham, we find here very specifically a covenant established with Noah, a covenant established with creation. And then we say this covenant theme stretches throughout all the ages. And in every section of the Bible, in fact, I wish to encourage you, the term covenant appears over 300 times in the Bible. Again, it's more than tangential or off to the side or making a mountain out of a molehill. What we're finding is covenant belongs to God. And the way that he interacts with human beings, humanity altogether, is by way of covenant. This is why we've spoken about creation before uh, in, in evangelism. We, we've spoken of this before. Remember, the, the, the tact in evangelism uh, is kind of left-footed when you say, would you like a personal relationship with God? But, but remember, um, actually, it, it's what kind of relationship do you want with God? Because by virtue of being born in space and time, bearing God's image, you have a relationship to God. 
God is a God of covenant. Notice how we see this with Noah and his family, though, more particularly. If you'll join with me in Genesis 6, we'll just kind of work through the text just a little bit. But join with me in Genesis 6 and look at beginning in verse 17, uh, where we see this, this covenant established with Noah. Verse 17 of Genesis 6. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. And then here's this contrast with Noah and his family. But I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall come into the ark. You, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. Now again, we think, okay, so, so this is a major revelation to Noah that I am going to wipe out everything, right? And you saw in the text, everything that is on the earth shall die. But there is another way forward for Noah and his family, and that is the way of covenant. I will establish distinctly a covenant with you, Noah, and your sons, and your sons' wives, and your wife. And so what are we learning about this as we say, okay, so we realize something is taught to us theologically about how God interacts with humanity. What do we learn about this? That God is a God of covenant. How does this prepare us for understanding Abraham better? Look with me if you have your text open. Just move over just to Genesis 17. Just to see the continuity and the consistency of how God interacts with humanity. That our God is a God of covenant. Not a God of covenant yesterday but a God of covenant forever. Notice, again, this prepares us. The first time we see this language in Noah, and then it repeats in Abraham. If you're in Genesis 17, just look at verse 7. And I will establish my covenant between me and you. Again, to Noah, I'm going to destroy everything that's on the the earth shall die. But, uh, so to Abraham... And I, and he says, I will establish my covenant with you. And so he says again, yet again to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you. And your offspring after you. Throughout their generations. For an everlasting covenant. To be God to you. And to your offspring after you. And then he goes on, and we'll get to this eventually. I will, I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan. For how long? In everlasting possession. How long will you be our God? Forever. I will be their God. You see, God's self-disclosure and self-revelation to Noah as a covenant establishing God. Everything goes, but you and your family, Noah. Upon what grounds? Upon covenantal grounds. I will bind myself to you. And I will bind myself to your sons after you. And I will bind myself to your sons' wives. And I will bind myself to your wife. God's self-revelation to Noah as a covenant establishing God reveals three essential characteristics of covenants. 
I wish to share these with you so that you can think, okay, covenant is a concept whereby God binds himself in relation. And then we could build on that concept as we go across progressive revelation from Genesis all the way to Revelation. But if we simply state with the, with the simple uh, aspect of it, of what we're introduced here, starting with it's a binding relationship, relationship between God and humanity. Then as we consider it, as it's more disclosed to Noah and further on to Abraham, we notice there's three essential characteristics that comprise the idea of a covenant relationship. And again, it's not just for Noah and it's not just for Abraham, but I wish to encourage you this morning. It involves your covenantal relationship through Christ as well. What are these three essential characteristics of covenants whereby God establishes a covenant? What does he do in it? Number one, in a covenant as witnessed through Noah and then further with Abraham, God binds himself to keeping it. This is an essential characteristic of covenant. What do we make of being in a covenant relationship with God? How do I rest in knowing that I'm in a binding relationship? Well, again, because God binds himself to keeping it. Um, consider uh, uh, chapter 8, verse 1. And now we're through the ark uh, situation of chapter 6, down through chapter 7, and look at verse 1 of chapter 8. What did we begin with in, uh, after, well, verse 24 of 7? And the waters prevailed on the earth 150 days. But what stops? What changes? Well, God remembered Noah. You see, I, I, everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish a covenant with you. So then the waters increased. The waters prevailed. The waters prevailed. The waters were upon the earth 150 days. But what, what changed things? God remembered Noah. If you look over to Genesis 19, there's not a lot of searching to be done this morning. Just a little bit, though, to, again, see as this leads us to understand the life of Abraham as we're introduced to covenant through Noah. In Genesis 19, there's the event that we'll get to, which is the Sodom and Gomorrah. And you remember God destroys Sodom. And there's an issue for Lot there as well. Well, in Genesis 19, verse 29, after these events, let me just read for you Genesis 19, verse 29. So it was that when God destroyed the cities of the valley, and if you're looking there in your text, you see the same thing as with Noah. There's tragedy. There's judgment. But God remembered Abraham. Give you one more again of these essential characteristics of God's covenant with man is that God binds himself to keeping it. Is when you turn to Exodus, and I could just read it for you, but in Exodus chapter 2, as we approach the Exodus events, I read for you in Exodus chapter 2, beginning in verse 23 During those many days, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery, and they cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God. And God heard the groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. Essential characteristic number one of God's covenant relationship with humanity 
indeed of your covenant relationship to Christ this morning as God binds himself to keeping it. One last aspect of that in the text here with Noah is consider that he already made a covenant unto Adam and Eve. And you remember the, the language of that is that there would be one who would come and would crush the serpent's head. Have you considered the jeopardy of that covenant promise at the global flood event? Thus Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God made a covenant promise, a redemptive covenant promise, and he binds himself to keeping it. And Noah's family is a mark of that faithfulness. Number two, number two, so uh, first, God binds himself to keeping them. The second thing that we see essential characteristics of covenant relationships with God is number two, families are included in them together. If you look with me uh, at Genesis 9, because I do wish you to look through the text as we're kind of passing and glossing over chapters as we approach our time in Abraham, but I wish you to see some evidence within the text for the argument that indeed in covenant relationships that God establishes with humanity, Families are included together, not as individual agents, but together as a family. Uh, if you're in uh, Genesis 9, as we see again in its rudimentary levels here, and then we watch it as it is a theme that continues indeed even to today. But chapter 9, beginning in verse 8, then God said to Noah and to his sons with him, behold, I establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. Again, it continues on as we consider Abraham, where indeed his sons are included. As I read for you just so briefly a moment ago in Genesis 17, I will establish my covenant with you and your offspring after you. as a covenant for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. Beloved, I wish it to not be a contentious thing that families before the Lord are covenantal families. Children born, we think of Clementine being born this week, is indeed not a standalone child of her own right, but she belongs to Spencer and Elizabeth and is a member of their covenantal family. This is something that prepares us for understanding Abraham as we move forward um, in the great and precious promises that are extended uh, to Abraham and, again, to his offspring after him. But number two, the, the essential characteristic here that we see with Noah in the initial beginning and carving out of binding relationships, God binds himself to keeping them and families are included together with them. Number three, the third essential element of covenants that we see as God established them across scripture, beginning with Noah, that prepares us for Abraham is God authenticates his promises with signs and seals. Um, Notice uh, verse 12. You, you'll see that of chapter 9, Genesis 9, verse 12. And God said, this is the sign. So he, so he establishes covenant. He just told uh, Noah and his boys in verse 8, I'm establishing covenant, and I'm doing so with you, Noah, and, and, and your boys, your offspring after you. 
and, and God said, this is the sign of, of the covenant. So again, God authenticates the promises with signs and seals. That, that I, this is the sign of the covenant that I make between me and you. And every living creature that is with you for all generations. And of course, we all know the sign is I have set my bow in the cloud. And that shall be a sign of the covenant between me and the earth. And then you see uh, the language that we've already discovered in verse 15. I will remember my covenant. I will remember it. Uh, How can we rest upon that? How do we know you will remember it? I bind myself to keeping the covenants that I establish. But what if we perform degenerately across the earth? Um, well, I will remember, I have bound myself to keeping it. I will remember my own covenants. Uh, verse 16, then the bow is in the clouds. I will see it. And once again, I will remember the everlasting covenant between God and every living creature of all flesh that is on the earth. Noah said, this is the sign of the covenant. God said to Noah, this is the sign of the covenant that I have established between me and all flesh that is on the earth. You see, at each and every stage of the Bible story, God relates to his people through covenant. And so central is this feature of your relationship to God that even as we gather this morning, in just a couple of moments, what are we doing as his people this morning? But celebrating our covenant relationship to him. The binding relation he has established with us, his people, that he is bound to keep. And our hope does rest upon that. Jesus says, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. In fact, so central is the idea of God and establishing and covenant keeping on behalf of his people. J.I. Packer, perhaps you know who that is, longtime uh, author, scholar, makes this comment regarding covenant's place in scripture. He reminds us to say that the very gospel of God, the very gospel of God is not properly understood. Again, can many understand it apart from covenant? Sure. Can they benefit by the simplicity of an announcement that your sins are forgiven? Absolutely. But if we truly want to meditate and receive well the announcement of the gospel, J.I. Packer reminds us that the very gospel of God is not properly understood until it is viewed within its covenantal framework. But what could that mean? But that God has bound himself to keeping the great and precious promise of the gospel. Now, again, as the floodwaters recede and we're past the flood events and the covenant that God has made with Noah, as the floodwaters begin to recede, Noah and his family with him represent the new beginning upon the earth. And you think, great, we're through the flood event. The earth is, in that measure, cleansed. 
Uh, Noah and his family is a, a new beginning. Things have been wiped clean. There's a new stage upon which God will perform his wondrous deeds. And, and, and we're filled with a sense of promise. God remembered him. The waters go down. Noah and his family are going to begin to crush. And the story is going to begin to go forward. And we're going to see wonderful things that build and bind. But again, this new beginning lasts, if we trust the biblical record, by decades and centuries, by the genealogical record. The new beginning for Noah and his family really only lasts until God starts yet again. It lasts for about 200 years. If our timeline is reasonable then the new beginning is around the year of the world, 1657. That is, again, if we approach the genealogical records of chapter 9 and then chapter 10, and you see chapter 10, and we'll end here in just a moment with some information from chapter 10. But you see, again, working through the genealogical information of chapter 9 and 10, we arrive at the event you all well so, know so very well, which is the Tower of Babel which roughly occurs, again, I say roughly, if we follow the decades and the centuries through the genealogical record of living and dying, living and dying, an offspring that is born, and so on and so forth, we arrive at the Tower of Babel events around 1870s. Once again, meaning the fresh start for Noah and his family brought us to Babel, and that was only 200 years between stepping off the ark and the event of Babel. Now, the question is, what is the crux of the matter? Why is Babel so bad? Have you ever thought of that? Like, you know, it seems a little bit cryptic. I mean, uh, it seems an awful severe judgment, which again is akin to the flood as God disperses man everywhere and breaks them apart in judgment. You think, what's really going on at Babel? What's the heart of Babel that really brings such severe judgment and confuses everybody and sends them on their way? What? going on? Well, as I conclude with you here in just a couple of moments, this is where I kind of want to end our time. The critical component of Babel that really makes Babel so wicked is at the heart of the struggle for the tower. Right, so Babel was already operational. And, and you can see that in, in, in chapter 10 as you consider Nimrod establishing uh, uh, Babel. And so there was a Babel location. There was a place, Babel. But at the heart of the trauma of the event surrounding chapter 11 is the building of the tower event. And the building of the tower, you see, is, a re- is an act of religious rebellion. That is... If we carefully close here in just a moment by tracing out some of the text, we see that indeed those who gathered to instigate the tower were those who were supposed to lead in worship. It is those who were of the godly line of Shem who came to Babel and they led a religious rebellion in the building of the tower. Notice how, let me trace the argument for you just briefly and then we'll close. To sketch this picture of the heart of the tower and its construction to be a rebellion of religious quality. 
Notice in chapter 9, verse 26, he also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. If you move over to the genealogical information, verse 21 of chapter 10, okay? So, so what you know so far in the identity marker of Shem is it's a godly line. This is the establishment of a priestly line. You, you see there, blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem. And then you have the rest of the language of servitude and enlarging Japheth and let them dwell where? In the tents of Shem. Shem is that establishment of a godly line. Jump over to verse 21 of chapter 10. And then you see what? The genealogical lead, record leading us through Shem's line. Verse 21. To Shem also, the father of all the children of Eber, the elder brother of Japheth. And then it moves down through the genealogical record. Verse 25. To Eber were born two sons. The name of the one was Peleg. He'll reemerge in the line in days ahead. But do you notice what follows right after he is introduced in his birth? For in his days, that is the days of Peleg, the earth was divided. Now notice also... The earth is divided, that is, God judges the tower event in the days of Peleg. And do you notice right after the days are divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Notice then, Joktan becomes the dividing point. He belongs to the godly family of Shem. And he and his offspring are the instigators of the tower event. Notice briefly as we kind of wind down our time together, verse 30. If you, if you follow from verse 26 and 27, 28, and you keep going, what you notice is that Joktan and his family settle in the hill country of the east. That's an important marker to be able to read the tower events well. Because as you jump down to the event that tells us what occurred for, for chapter 10 to then occur, that is God judged and spread men everywhere in all of their language and their lands, you find out that it's religious at its heart. It's a rejection of being the people of God. By verse 1 of chapter 11, now, this is what you need to know about chapter 10 that was just sketched for you. There was an event that occurred. What is the event? The whole earth had one language at this time. And they all had the same words, okay? Sure. But notice verse 2. People migrated into Babel. From where? From the east. Who was in the east? Well, we already were told by Moses, it's Jockton's family. They migrated from the east and they found a plain in the land of Shinar. And they settled there. And then they, that is the people who migrated from the east, Joktan's family, the brother of Peleg, the offspring of Shem, the godly line, they then said to one another, come, let's make bricks and burn them thoroughly. And they had brick for stone and butamen for mortar, but it's more than that. They said, come, let us build ourselves a city and a tower. 
with its top all the way to the heavens. And look at the religious nature of the religious apostasy that brings about the tower events. Let us make a name for ourselves. Notice the act of rebellion as we close. Lest we be dispersed over the face of the whole earth. Wait a minute. I thought God had told Noah and his family to be dispersed over the face of the earth. When he said, and you be fruitful and multiply, team on the earth and multiply in it. No, we will not. You see, it's the Joktonites who reject God because they do not want to be a covenantal people. They want to be an independent people. We don't need his name. Let's make our own. Let's stay together lest we be divided and fill the earth. Team upon it and multiply. You see, beloved, human flourishing of what we learn in the story from creation all the way to the new creation, human flourishing is never found in utter independence. Human flourishing is found in covenant relationship to God through Jesus Christ our Savior. So it is as we gather to the Lord's table. We celebrate the mercy that we have found, not in our own ingenuity, not in our own independence, but each one of us gather because we have declared we are wholly dependent upon the Lord Jesus Christ, that his body was broken for us and his blood was shed for our sins. Let us pray. Father, we pray that you will nourish your word and your table to us as your people. That we would humble ourselves in our natural inclinations towards independence and self-governance and we would come under by faith to obedience in you. That we would reject the sinful impulse to make our own name great, to pursue our own ends, We'd experience the joy that comes with making much of Jesus Christ. Aid us in our weakness and do so beginning now, we pray, by your elements. As we nourish our faith, feasting upon them. We praise you for the covenant of grace shown to us in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.